0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of essay voices from the field. Each week, we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice, get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be.
1: Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I am your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I'm so happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, we have another exciting topic. We are going to have, we have two guests today, so we have double the trouble today. We have Eric Sorson and Sasha Masami from the Miami University of Ohio. How are you guys doing today? Good, Thanks. Great. Good to have you. Before we dive into the topic, I want to hear more about what you each do at your prospective institution at Miami Miami U of Ohio and a little bit about the institution for our listeners.
2: Absolutely. Um, So my name is Sasha Matsumi. I currently serve as one of the Assistant Directors of Residence Life at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. This is my fourth year at Miami. As part of my role, we have a campus about 8,500 students or so on campus, and and I oversee just over 2,000 of those students, and we have 36 uh, halls within our inventory, and I oversee three areas of campus, one of which has a lot of our sorority communities, our sorority LLC. I have another cluster of halls that are first-year students, and then another cluster of halls that um, house some of our upper-class, non-affiliated, non-Greek students at Miami. And in addition to my role as a supervisor of those areas, I also oversee our uh, professional staff training and development, which is a great opportunity to train our staffs on a lot of issues. It's also a great way to learn a little bit more about what our live-in new professional staff are dealing with um, and helping them try to overcome some of the common issues they experience while having a live-in position.
3: Eric? I'm also an assistant director, and as Sasha mentioned, we each supervise a team uh, in an area, Uh, so a big part of our job is supervising our professional staff in the halls. In terms of thinking about Miami University as an institution, we are a rural institution. We're out in the middle of cornfields. It's funny because when folks will visit us sometimes, they'll say, I'm driving up to this place, getting closer, my GPS says I'm getting close, and there's nothing here. Like, what's, what am I gonna end up at? All of a sudden, a <laughs> beautiful institution emerges from the hills. So we're, we're very rural here, but we do love it here. Uh, on our Oxford campus, uh, the campus uh, where we work is our largest campus, about 17,000 undergraduate students. And we do have regional campuses, both in Hamilton and Middleton, surrounding areas. So we, we do work with those a little bit too, but our work is primarily here on the Oxford campus. Uh, we are a primarily white institution. We do see uh, we are known as a public ivy, so our, our institution does have a reputation of quality education, which is good, but but with that comes what we've learned in working here is sometimes. Some of our students are navigating some unexamined privilege. So uh, while that's challenging at times, um, and for some of our students, really challenging, we get an opportunity to really work with students as they do some real meaningful uh, development through their lives. So uh, that's a little bit about us.
2: And then Eric and I are both uh, involved with Akulai, so we wanted to shout out a little bit about that, but also some knowledge communities within NASPA. And so it's great to have the opportunity to to do this uh, podcast today and, and talk with a larger community. Great. Now, when you say you're
1: involved with the KC's, which ones are you involved with?
2: Yeah, so I'm actually involved with the multicultural KC um, as well as student leadership. And those are the two that I'm most involved with. I've been involved with the, the multicultural KC for since pretty much since I was a grad student myself.
3: Yeah, and I've done a little bit of work helping with the uh, Mental Health Strategies Conference specifically and doing a little bit of planning for that.
2: So you mentioned that the
1: Oxford campus has 17,000. So what was the total population for Miami U?
3: Yeah, I think across with the regionals, I think we're about 22 or so, uh, still undergraduate. We do have grad programs. I'd be guessing if I gave you a number. Yeah, there are both master's and doctoral students here as well, but I, I would, don't have those numbers. And here in residence life, we have a two-year live-on requirement, so our life consists of talking about undergrads mostly.
2: But Eric is a graduate of the Miami University PhD program, so he's familiar with the doctoral program uh, here on campus, at least for the higher ed, the SAHI
1: uh, And that was my next question. I figured, um, you know, no other degrees are important but education anyway, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So, I'm assuming yours is from School of Ed, Eric? Uh,
3: Yeah, yeah. Educational leadership, uh, the student affairs and higher education program.
1: Right. Okay, great, 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 great. Okay. So, that brings us to the topic at hand. How long have you each been in Res Life?
3: About 13 years for me.
2: Yeah. And I'm just maybe about a year more than that.
1: And I know that when I talk to people and meet different folks at the NASPA conventions regionally and nationally, we all kind of fall into res life. Mm -hmm. I mean, excuse me, fall into student affairs. And the main, I would say, corridor, you know, direct approach usually is through residential Mm -hmm. life. Residential Mm -hmm. education, depending on what your campus calls it. So I know that there's, there's, you know, obviously residential life heavy when you start thinking about the different professions that are in NASPA. And that's one of the, the direct doors. And then you mentioned the other door to NASPA itself. So you've got res life into student affairs, multicultural, cultural programs, you know, orientation, things of that nature. But also as far as the open open door to NASPA would be to be involved in the KC. So like you, I was involved in the KC. I'm I'm a former African-American chair. I I did it actually. Before they stole, told us that we couldn't do it anymore, <laughs> but I can't help it. The group kept electing us, and we just kept doing it. And then they said, "Okay, we guys got to stop this. We got to let other people do us." So and we've been trying. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Um, there isn't a KC, though, for res life, is there? No, not that I'm aware of now. Yeah, I'm just, I just, you know, as I'm thinking, I said, you know, that actually seems like that should be something that should happen because yeah. there's a lot of residential folk that are involved in NASPA. So that's that's surprising that there isn't a residential component, but I'm sure it's coming now that I've given you the idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the topic that I'm showing that we are to discuss today is the secondary traumatic stress in the residential assistant. So before we dive in, give me uh, what you are defining as secondary traumatic stress.
2: Yeah. Um, so I'll share a little bit from an anecdotal perspective, and then Eric can jump in, obviously, and talk a lot about his research. But I first became really interested in this topic and actually really appreciate having known Eric prior to working at Miami because I saw the effects of student staff of mine. We So some of this all starts because Um, When I was a new professional, I did have a student death on campus and there were some RAs who were in particularly close to the student. So obviously they were affected as people beyond their role were affected because the student um, had passed. And what I saw was actually in the student staff who were trying to help their friends, their other RAs through this experience, a lot of them experienced a lot of fatigue, a lot of burnout, a lot of feelings that they didn't know how to help or that they emotionally were being affected by just trying to help their friend. And then I also, the following year, I had a situation in which I had a student who um, had multiple attempts um, and the RA of that community felt like the resident was being a little dependent on them, that they were using language that made the RA feel like they were the only thing that was helping the student sort of stay alive and that RA ultimately decided that what was best for her own mental health was to stay, step away from the role, and she left the role. And me being a young professional at the time, um, I didn't have words to describe what this, what this was, what, what I was seeing in my staff, but also what I was seeing in myself. Um, and I actually, I, I've known Eric uh, since I was an undergraduate. Uh, Eric and I went to Oregon State University, go Beavs, mm-hmm. uh, together, and Eric at the time was actually in his master's program for counseling education. And across the country, we were opposite sides of the, of the nation. Eric was in Georgia at the time, and I, I reached out to Eric and I said, you know, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm seeing. I don't have words to describe this. This is not what I learned in my program, my higher ed program. I also have a business background, I have an MBA, and I and I just didn't have words to describe this. And as I was talking to Eric about it, I don't know if the term came up, but he was able to describe other helping professions that had experienced some of these phenomenons, and was really helping to put words to what not only my staff was experiencing, that I didn't know how to provide them that supervisor support, but in some ways I was experiencing myself, where I wasn't experiencing the trauma firsthand, but I was definitely feeling some almost, I don't know, numbing effect of dealing with crisis that other students are experiencing, trauma that other students are experiencing. And myself, I I wasn't able to tap into my own emotions during those moments. And so as a brand new professional, I was experiencing some of this and I just didn't have words to describe it. And thanks in part, uh, honestly, to knowing Eric and the the educational background he has, he was able to put some words um, into that.
3: And I think those words would be in defining it. Sasha's really described it, but it's this stress that in this case, thinking about resident assistance that an RA would experience when they're helping someone, and so you help someone through a traumatic experience that they're having, and then some stress comes onto you as a byproduct of that. You'll see in the literature, people will use the terms compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma. Typically, they mean the same thing when people use them. Uh, they, they are somewhat used interchangeably. In literature, I think there are some nuanced differences. And so when we look at secondary traumatic stress, because it sounds pretty intense and dramatic, and I think it can be, but it's not always. It doesn't have to be cumulative. It can be one instance in which you just feel very stressed after a situation where you've helped someone. There's also uh, literature to suggest that sometimes even knowing about a traumatic situation on your campus can help uh, increase these feelings of secondary traumatic stress. So basically it's a type of stress that comes vicariously by knowing about or assisting someone with a stressful situation.
1: And, you know, not only RAs, but we as staff are dealing with it as well. I mean, any kind of death is traumatic. And then when it's a student that you know, as I've experienced that myself, Mm -hmm. as staff people, as administrators, we almost have to compartmentalize our feelings to do our jobs as far as for you helping your staff teams, as far as the RAs, I'm not sure if you have RDs that you supervise who Mm -hmm. also supervise the RAs, but either way, it is very different difficult because we have feelings too. Yes. And it's just it's very hard to compartmentalize these feelings to act. To I, I hate to say to act like it's not bothering us, but yep. Yep. we have to be strong for them.
3: Yeah,
2: absolutely. And this is one of the main reasons why this has been such a, a passion area. I know for myself and like I said, I mean, a lot of my own experiences are those anecdotal things where I am very empathetic as a person, as a supervisor, I am hands-on and that's just my nature. And when working with these staff, and like I said, early in my career talking about RAs, what was hard for me was wanting to be there for them, but also trying to figure out what that meant for me. And many a times, absolutely, I would say I put aside my own feelings in order to be there for those students and for those staff. And it took me years before I was able to really understand what that meant and what and I had great supervisors, let me be clear, but to even be able to ask for what supervisor support would have looked like in those moments. And now right. as a supervisor of professional staff, it is vital, important that I not only focus on how do I provide the right support to my staff, but that I then talk about this in professional spheres. And so I try to talk a lot about this through organizations that I've been involved in. Um, I had the wonderful opportunity recently to, to be a faculty member for a program through a cool called Stars College, which takes undergraduate students who are thinking about going into the field. And while I love, love talking about careers in student affairs and why people should think about going into the field, I also think it's vital and a disservice if we don't talk to our young Students who are thinking about this as a field and a profession about the toll that it can have on them, um, and so I've actually presented to to star students around secondary traumatic stress and what are some factors that contribute to it. What can you do to mitigate the effect? Because I think it's really important, and that's why I'm appreciative of the opportunity today to talk on this podcast. Because I think destigmatizing it, talking about the fact that this is a real a phenomenon that our student staff are experiencing that we need to support them through and then our professional staff are experiencing because just earlier today I, I read an article where someone was talking about leaving the field and that part of it was for their own mental uh, health and that the role and they were referencing being a resident assistant that they were dreading that 3 a.m. phone call and that responding and I think you know one thing that we talk a little bit of it about and Eric could elaborate a lot more but not only is there compassion fatigue but there's this phenomenon called compassion satisfaction satisfaction and this idea that, that the satisfaction you get in your role, right? Doctors, ER doctors know that they're going to lose more patients than they're probably going to save. So how do they go to work every day? How does a ER doctor go to work every day knowing that throughout their day they're going to lose more patients than they save? And the reason that they go to work every day is the satisfaction they receive in the work that they do. They know that the life that they save or the impact that they have is worth it for those that they lose. And so how are we helping our staff find their their satisfaction in the work they do? And be okay when they admit to themselves and to their supervisors that the, the, the fatigue they're experiencing does not outweigh the satisfaction they're feeling in this moment. So I think it's really important that we talk about this, and we talk about this early in people's careers, and we talk about this before people go into the field, and then we as supervisors, mid-level, senior-level professionals, talk about the supervisor support we can provide to our staff. And you mentioned Earlier in your introduction, that you
1: run the training. Is there a piece of training that you do each year for your staff to prepare? I mean, not that we can ever prepare,
2: but at least prepare. I mean, I don't even think of another word, really. Yeah, you know, I think that's a that's a nuanced question, and I think it's something that that I'm hoping to do better with. And I think Eric, and and quite frankly, Eric recent research is helping inform how I do my work, because I think I have seen this as a anecdotal phenomenon that I try to work with, but I didn't know what the research was pointing us towards. What are those best practices? The short answer is I I say yes, I'm mindful of that in training. I was also in charge of training at at another institution prior to coming here, and I tried to incorporate that, but I think for a long time, and I'm only speaking for myself as a as sort of a non researcher, somebody who would say, "Oh yeah, that's a thing, right?" Like we all acknowledge it's a thing, but you need research to prove that and to show that and to redirect our efforts towards what is actually
1: going to work. You know, when you talk about that, and this is very touching to me because. We have lost, I'm at California State University, Humboldt, and I've been Mm -hmm. there, it'll be three years in July, and we have lost just since August of 17, six students. Yeah. That's a lot. Absolutely. And- uh, I used to work at the, um, formerly of the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and I was there 20 years, and I remember losing some students, like maybe an alum that I kind of knew, or I was like, oh, I remember him, you know, he came by the office, or this, that, and the other, but I don't know if it's because Humboldt is so much smaller, you know, USC is more like the 40,000, whereas Humboldt's 7,000. Mm-hmm. The community is smaller, the nature of the job, I guess, it's just, I mean, I'm always in in student affairs type positions, but this has been the most terrifying year for me. I'm like, I'm, I'm scared, like you said, to get that phone call. I mean, I'm always looking at my phone anyway, and I've always tell students, you know, call me, and if you're going to leave, make sure you leave a message, you know, whatever the case, but the morning that we lost a student two years ago this month, there was like 15 calls that were missed, and I thought, oh God, something has happened. But what's missing, which I'd like to hear about from your research, Eric, Mm -hmm. is that we don't even do it as a staff. Like, you know, we I mean, everybody works at an institution and there's going to be a suicide at some point. I hate to say it like that. There's going to be a suicide. There's going to be someone who loses their life in in an accident over spring break Mm -hmm. or over Christmas, the holiday. You know, those always happen. And we can't stop that. But, you know, now that I think about when you were saying, Sasha, there isn't any kind of training, even
2: for us, even yes. as an administrator, we just don't talk about it. I think something else and and I don't want to project on these experiences because I don't I don't actually know, but I've worked at five institutions and, you know, each of them are their own small, small cities, like you said, like we're going to experience the greatest highs, we're going to have births and weddings and celebrations and we have lows, there are going to be students and they're going to be staff who are going to get sick and are going to have natural causes of death, and we're going to have students who die by suicide. But I've actually worked on campus or have had communities that have been touched either when I was there or afterwards where we've had RAs who have died by suicide. I have known student affairs professionals who have died by suicide and the impact that that has on their colleagues of saying like, we are ingrained to be putting that smile on our faces and going right. day and focusing on student first, student first, student first. Right, right. That's a big part of it. I mean, when 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 I have seen campuses that have lost resident assistants, I wonder where or i have had attempts by resident assistants. You know, I I don't want to pretend like I know everything that went into to that that student's life or a professional staff member who has died by suicide, but knowing that I've had communities touched by that makes this even more more important. And I think the 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 training really is vital or the the best practices really are vital.
3: I think exactly what you're saying is is so important. And, and even when I started this research and I was interested in looking at RAs and exploring this from their perspective, I was thinking, what can we do in RA training? What can we do for our professional staff to help support the RAs, fully understanding also that we are experiencing this too. So you're exactly right. Some of the things that I found uh, as important factors for RAs, which I believe would be important factors for us as professionals as well, is the talking about it, is getting support. Sasha's mentioned uh, supervisory support several times, and that was absolutely the most key factor in the factors that I looked at in terms of lowering uh, this risk of secondary traumatic stress. And very well, that might be something that people hear and, and say, well, intuitively, of course, that makes sense. Uh, but I think to have the research to support that and to see how significant of a difference that made. And interestingly enough, I used a a supportive supervisory scale to measure what supportive supervision was in this example, but it was the RAs who were taking that and giving us their information such that it was their perception of a supportive supervisor. I didn't actually go to their supervisor and say, are you engaging in supportive behaviors? It was literally the RA thinking their supervisor was supportive of them, both personally professionally, would talk to them when a, when a serious or stressful incident occurred, kept them in the loop about changes to the department and things happening outside of their position. All that kind of stuff contributed to really help mitigate some of these symptoms of secondary traumatic stress. And I would think that's going to be true for us as well. So how do we make this a conversation where we know not only are we training people to be really supportive in their supervision, which of course many of us are, but, but it's so key. We have to make sure that that's there and that we're having conversations and grieving together when these really difficult situations occur. We have a death on campus, uh, et cetera.
1: So what would be maybe one or two things that you guys have done with your RAs when this has happened?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple things, I think having individual conversations, making sure that we're talking to those affected, um, uh, getting them together as a group, getting counselors in the space, which I know is a, is a common practice, for many, but some of it is just conversation uh, that does help uh, some of that debrief. I, I did another uh, brief study in one of my classes where I talked to uh, student affairs professionals about, tell me about a really difficult situation you dealt with and, and how you managed that. And I did interviews and folks uh, all said whether, the, so some of them uh, really were able to work through it successfully, some weren't. And the biggest difference was, who talked to them, if at all. Uh, Some of them would say, yeah, this thing happened. Maybe I had a a student attempt suicide um, in my corridor while I was an RA, and no one ever talked to me about it. They just sort of were like, hey, good job. Thanks for doing that. And we moved on with our lives. And, And people would be talking about that 10 years later and saying, you know, I still remember that, and that just, I didn't get the support I needed. So those conversations, while they may feel like the obvious thing that we should do, we need to make sure that, that we're doing. The other thing that, that I did with my professional staff, as, as that example that, that you brought up, um, was, uh, so one of the measures that I used um, to explore uh, secondary traumatic stress, what I used to actually measure it, uh, I did that with all of my professional staff, and some of them looked at it with their RAs, where they actually filled it out outside of any traumatic incident directly, but just to say, generally, where are you falling in terms of secondary traumatic stress, burnout, uh, compassion, satisfaction. And I met individually with each of them to talk through it. And I found that to be really uh, eye-opening and um, meaningful for the staff, uh, for them to see where they fell on this scale. And um, And then we were able to look through the scale and say, hey, what what questions did you answer such that you got such a high score or such a low score? And, and it really seems to be something meaningful for them. So I think similarly, that's something you could utilize uh, in a crisis situation to, to explore that further. And, and, and it opens up conversation a little differently.
2: Yeah. And I, I've also used um, one of the measures, the ProQual, uh, both with student staff, professional staff, and then like I said, with, with stars college students. And then we've talked about those results, um, you know, where their, their compassion fatigue is or where, where their compassion satisfaction is um, and having that conversation. I also think talking to people who maybe uh, rate, I don't, I'm trying to use the right term, but basically they have a, the pre-proclivity to possibly be affected by, by this stronger than others, Uh, what that looks like for them. And that doesn't mean you are not capable of being in this role. So sometimes when people take some of these assessments outside of an extra traumatic situation, if you're just taking it from a baseline and they find out that they have a a extra sensitivity to this, they think, oh, well, then I'm not made for this role. And that's just not true. It's about talking about how do you, before the emergency, before the 3 a.m., phone call. How do you talk about your needs? How do you assess your needs? How do you know when you need a moment? Um, Having those sort of conversations. And so I think, I mean, honestly, a lot of this starts with destigmatizing. And, you know, and I don't think that I've done anything revolutionary by talking to like the STAR students about it, but I've had multiple of them come up to me afterwards or contact me later, ask if I'll present to their entire department because they just, this is just a topic that we just are not talking enough about, and they want to talk about it more. And, so, and it's a simple um, you know, assessment called the ProQual um, that's, that's available online um, that people can take and then, and then have dialogues about the results.
3: And some I'll mention that, that I've done with RAs and, and was supported by my research as well was, uh, as will not surprise you, uh, those who dealt with more crisis had a higher risk of secondary traumatic stress. Not only in terms of, of law of averages, because eventually you might feel that more and more, uh, but it can be cumulative at some level. It doesn't have to be, but but you have to imagine, as you would expect, the more that happens, the more you see that. So can we encourage RAs to take time off where appropriate, which Sasha touched on, or professional staff, but, but also thinking bigger picture, how can we um, spread out the workload? Uh, if, if one staff member is regularly dealing with incidents, is there a way where they can call on some others for help? So it's not them all the time. You know, you have that challenging corridor where you're documenting a lot. Um, How do we alleviate some of that if that's possible? Um, I think we need to be thinking that way. Uh, Obviously, self-care is going to be really critical in these kinds of situations such that we're helping uh, whoever we supervise or ourselves think about what is real self-care for me. You know, it's, it's, Um, there's no, you know, we have all these lists about here are some things you can do for self care, but there's no cookie cutter. This works and this doesn't, you know, so, so having those conversations outside of crisis to know what are some of your really meaningful self care approaches and encouraging that when you get into a situation where you're like, Hey, I I need a break. And I can say to, to an RA or, or to a RD that I know, Hey, I know this is something that, that really helps you. Um, is this something you can do? Can you take some time off? Um, and, and, help navigate some of that. I think those kinds of things help us a lot as well.
2: And I think talking and processing and then being able to talk about the next steps is vital. I just had a conversation with somebody last week about how, you know, we talk about, oh, take the day off or take some time away. But in reality, I mean, I'll say this, that it only prolongs that you're going to come back to it. And mm-hmm. what's really important is not just take a day off, but what does it mean when you come back? And mm-hmm. what do you need? And, and what does tomorrow look like? Because I think often we our first step of self-care is, oh, take a day off, take a bubble bath. You know, the, this idea that a break is going to somehow... But working in residence life, I can tell you that my emails just get fuller and my list of to-do lists just get longer. And so sometimes taking a day off only exacerbates it. Exactly, exactly. Really talk about what you need when you come back.
1: Exactly. And then, but then, and, and again... Yes, we are always on mode for students. I mean, that's just yeah. what we do at student yeah. affairs. But I tell you, um, the last couple of deaths just really rocked rocked my world in such mm-hmm. a way that I it just I you know I, I appreciate that you said the fact of having conversations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we did uh, two years ago was to bring extra counselors to campus. Yeah. Um, because my thing when I talk with the vice president, I said, okay. I, I know we're doing our jobs, but hey, I'm having a hard time. Yeah. And there's some other faculty and staff people who are having a hard time because this student really affected the whole campus. Yes. And so one of the things that I did is I just organized like a prayer service mm-hmm. or a, a ceremony where I brought some local pastors in and, and they prayed over the community. And so we were all in this room. and It was about 400 people. Yeah, And wow. I noticed that that helped. And that's why yeah. I really appreciate what you're saying. Conversations, listening to uh, folks coming up to the mic and saying different things about the student.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And just being able to just be human, I think yes. that yes. sometimes we 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 feel like we have to be superhuman, and we're just as, as human as they are. And in some cases, hell, I was more upset than some of the students because I knew the student personally.
3: Yeah,
1: you know, who came by my office three times a week, and then all of a sudden he's not there. And so That's it's right. it, it, it's it's really something when when you do the training, Sasha. And as we're wrapping up, I'm looking at my little timer because this mm-hmm. is this is a deep subject, and I think. Mm-hmm. S- something needs to be created. I-, I don't know if it's out there. Maybe that's what you've started to do, Eric. But I think there needs to be something that's created as just a, I don't know, an administrative training, a campus. Yeah. Something so that when it does
2: happen, it doesn't snatch you by surprise. That is one of my goals and one of the reasons why I I wanted to jump at the opportunity even to start this dialogue because that's what I'm looking for next. Like, again, I appreciate my colleague here because I had feelings and I had observations and he helped to, to bring words and definitions to it. And now that we have that data, having the next step is, and what do we do about it? Because I think we are doing a disservice if we say, oh, this is an issue that affects a large percentage of our staff. Well, it's just the way that it's always been. We need to do better. We need to help figure out a way to train our staff. We need to figure out a way to have response mechanisms in order to, to help Again, mitigate some of these these factors. And I think that's something that, I mean, I know speaking for myself, but I've, I've had many conversations with Dr. Sorensen, figuring out what those next steps are for sure. Eric and I are presenting this summer at a cool eye on this topic, but also we're bringing in a, a former supervisee of my own who experienced something in, in her communities this year at another institution. And she reached out to me to say, you know, these are my feelings, this is what I'm experiencing, this is what I want to try to help shape and teach and train my staff and I said you know we should we should bring this to a larger audience and and pull, pulling Eric in as well and using some of his research we should bring this to a larger audience about what are those next steps we've acknowledged that it it's a problem now what do we do about it
1: absolutely and and a quick question because we are definitely running out of time and I, and I hate this but when you do your training do you also
2: bring in the counseling staff Sasha when you said you do your training with your with your yeah. staff yeah, so one thing I will absolutely uh, plug for Miami University that I that I really appreciate, and I've actually had the opportunity to present at NASPA with, uh, we have a liaison from the counseling center that are, that are assigned to each team. So as a supervisor, I oversee uh, some areas of campus, and I have a team of nine people that I directly supervise, full time professional and graduate staff. And I bring my liaison in both with my team, but also as part of training, we have time with our liaisons, and we have time with the counseling center, and they talk about some of these things, and then we build a real relationship. This liaison is not a, not just a, oh, I met you in August and I know your name and if I have a phone, you know, I can call you on the phone. But like, I bring them in, I bring my liaison in a couple times during the semester to just address my staff. Not to talk about our residents, like that's important too, I bring them in. They do some meditation exercises with my staff. They talk about the stress they've been under. They have this opportunity to, 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 to own it, to own those feelings and those emotions. And then I encourage my staff to bring our liaison into their, their team meetings, their RA staff meetings, to do similar things. Yes, they're a great resource when we have a student of concern, that we have a direct contact. But I also want to ha- emphasize the idea that that uh, they, they can be there for us as well. You know, I believe... Without data, I believe, it just in my heart of hearts, that sometimes helpers are the least uh, willing to go get help because they feel like that's for others, right? RAs feel like, I take my residence to the counseling center. I don't go. Full-time professional staff say the same. And so I want to bring that to them. and so incorporated into our larger departmental training, but I also bring them into my team. And I I call my my liaison up myself and process through, you know, feelings that I that I'm having. And I and I was very lucky to have the opportunity to present at NASPA where we we brought in one of the liaisons to talk about that relationship. And I think it's it's not unique to Miami, but it is unique from my lived experience at institutions. It's it's the first place I've worked that's had this direct emphasis.
1: I'm not sure if you've presented recently because I I couldn't make the last um, big conference, but I appreciate you and Eric maybe coming and doing something nationally with uh, the next conference or whatever the case may be, where we as administrators and staff can really come together so that we can learn best practices. Because I know when, when we had the big campus shooting thing in Virginia years ago, that we've talked about it on that scale. But I I, I don't recall. Now, I could be there because maybe I'm more sensitive to it now because in the last two years of things happening. But I know I would be interested in seeing something about, you know, our role as staff and administrators when it comes to student deaths on campus.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a need and I think you're right that, those kinds of conversations happen occasionally, but not enough. We need to be doing a lot more work in this area.
2: And it starts with this. And so, I mean, again, I can't can't underemphasize how much I appreciate NASPA giving me the, the forum. And I can't uh, thank enough Eric for being willing to, to join me today uh, to talk about this. Because like I said, I mean, it's a it's an area in which I am very passionate about. Because I think about, I mean, I, I, I don't go a year. I definitely don't go more than a month without thinking about my first few staffs and about, about me 10 years ago, me 15 years ago, and thinking about, I want to be the person that I needed then. And I think about that a lot. I think about the person that I would have needed. And again, I had wonderful supervisors. And so it's not about that. It's about it's about the field as a whole and about talking about these things and about addressing these things and about putting them at the forefront of our mind. And so, uh, you know, I thank NASPA for the opportunity. And I think, again, I put a plug for cool I, I've worked and had the opportunity to present Multiple times, there's been some commissions that have been put on by a COOI around crisis response and around um, some of these issues, mental health. Um, so I appreciate that it's become a bigger topic. Eric and I talk about this a lot. We see it a lot. We see it on social media more and more and more in the last few years people are talking about it they want they want to talk about it and I only see that as a as a positive thing and so and I appreciate researchers like Eric dedicating their life honestly to learning about it because it was a phenomenon I I felt but it was something that he was able to put names to and data to and and prove that it wasn't just something happening in my head it is something that really affects affects many many people and affects our staff our entry level and our RAs who are our forward-facing student-facing we need them we wouldn't exist my position wouldn't exist if already didn't exist, and yet they're some of the ones that have the biggest need, and we need to emphasize the importance of being there. Absolutely. So again,
1: I thank each of you for bringing this topic to the podcast uh, series. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I know I found value because this is a very... You know, I mean you guys are more so thinking about the reset, but this is just student affairs, college life in general. This all our institutions are dealing with this type of thing. And like you said, more and more it's it's in it's in our faces. So I definitely appreciate and found value in what you um you guys are speaking about. And thank you so much for taking the time to share that with us. Um, I'm looking. I'm I'm now putting it back on you, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys may do in the next NASPA. To maybe I don't know. It might. It may be something that needs to be more than just a 75-minute piece. I mean, maybe it's like a three-hour. Maybe it's a half-day pre-con. I would definitely come if you were to have one. So, but anyway, I do appreciate it. It is very heartfelt subject for me personally Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. for others. And thank you so much for taking the time to share. Please look forward to future. Your podcast. And I'm hoping that uh, Eric and Sasha will tell their um, colleagues to uh, go on the NASPA.org website and just uh, type in podcast and you will see where uh, there's a release of several thus far. So what you have to say is important. So if you're listening to my voice right now, think of a topic, go on the website. There is a button where you can press I have an idea for a show and we will make it happen. Thank you again. And please continue having a great day or evening.
0: Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at essayvoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org/sa-voices. See you next time.